Hi, everyone, and welcome back to this Sunday School series on the Gospel of Mark. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I serve as the Scholar-in-Residence at the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, and I'll be your instructor for this lesson. Throughout this whole series on the Gospel of Mark, one of our main goals has been to listen in on Mark's unique and distinctive voice. That is, what specific stories does he tell? How does his telling of these stories about Jesus differ from other Gospels, such as the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke? And how does all of this, or what does all of this, reveal about Mark's understanding of who Jesus was and his vision for discipleship? These are some of the questions that we seek to answer through this summer series on the Gospel of Mark. In this lesson, which is Lesson 4, we'll be taking a look at Mark 3, 7 through 441. In this small bit of scripture, we actually encounter a number of familiar stories, or stories that I suspect are familiar to many of you, including them are parables about seeds and sowers, and and a story about Jesus calming the wind and the waves. These stories are very familiar, and as I've signaled in earlier lessons, The familiarity of Scripture can sometimes be a chief roadblock to to us engaging it in a transformative way, because sometimes when we encounter familiar stories, we already know what the ending is. We already know how the story is going to get played out. We know the general characters and arc of the narrative. So the challenge for many of us when we encounter these familiar stories is to listen with uh, an open mind and with a fresh perspective, that we might hear these stories anew and afresh, and that they might begin to transform not only how we understand these sacred scriptures, but also how we live live our lives of faith. So in this particular lesson, we're going to focus in on three specific aspects of Mark's content. We're going to be looking at Jesus among the crowds. We're going to be looking at the par- the set of parables related to seeds and sowers. And then we're going to finally come back and address a topic that I've named in earlier lessons, and that is this idea of the messianic secret, Uh, those instances in Mark where Jesus tells the disciples to keep his miracles and to keep what he's uh, claiming and proclaiming, to keep it secret among the crowds. So they're the three topics that we're going to be taking a look at. Let's begin in Mark 3, 7 through 35, where we encounter Jesus among the crowds. Here in this text, we, as is common in early parts of Mo- uh, the Gospel of Mark, we get several comments about the, the crowds and the people that are following Jesus. But in these particular verses, um, I want to suggest that those crowds are basically subdivided into three particular groups, each of which are important to take a look at in turn. Let's begin in 3, 7 through 12 uh, in its discussion of the multitudes. The text reads as follows. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. Now remember, we must remember here and take a step back geographically, Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark in these early days is situated in the Galilean region. This is the area immediately to the west of the Sea of Galilee, and it's there that we find towns like Capernaum and Sepphoris and the hometown of Jesus' parents, Nazareth. Most of Jesus' ministry was situated then on that western side of the Sea of Galilee, which, it, which is about two-thirds of the way um, north, um, two-thirds of the way up north uh, in the country of Israel in general. Occasionally, Jesus takes a boat trip across the Sea of Galilee, 
to the eastern side, which was the Gentile side, we'll encounter Jesus on the eastern side of Galilee in the next lesson as we turn to Mark chapter 5. But here, for the most part, uh, Jesus is still dwelling in the western or Jewish part of the Galilean region. And so what this text is saying is that a multitude from Galilee followed him. That makes a lot of sense. We have already heard this already in Mark, that when Jesus teaches in Capernaum, when he's healing people in various places, a great crowd begins to follow around him. In fact, sometimes the crowds are so great uh, that that Jesus must escape. Sometimes it says that he sets out in a boat onto the Sea of Galilee simply to have some space and to move away from the crowds. So what's said in verse 7 here is not surprising at all. But the the passage continues uh, with the following description in verse 8. The great multitude from Galilee followed him, hearing all that he was doing. They came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and the region around Tyre and Sidon. Now, this this next verse here then names a bunch of different regions, um, also from which Jesus was gathering uh, followers. And at least for me, when I read scripture sometimes, it's easy just to gloss over these geographical terms. I have some general sense of where Jerusalem is, and the other is it's easy just to, to, to think of as not important. They're merely geographical signposts. But as, uh, I've, as I've emphasized in earlier parts of this series, understanding the geography of Jesus's ministry is very, very important. So if you're following along on the, with the presentation slides or the Prezi slides posted online that go along with these audio presentations, you'll see a map uh, in which I've circled the various different regions that, that Mark mentions in uh, chapter 3, verse 8. You have Galilee, which again is in the northern portion of the country, and then you have references to, Ju- to Judea excuse me, to Judea. That's the region in the south that includes the city of Jerusalem. But then Mark goes on and also mentions several other places which might be less familiar. He mentions Idumea, which is in the very far south. This is the region just to the west of the Dead Sea. It's very uh, dry, hot, desert region. It's not far from uh, the fortress of uh, Matsada, and it's also closer to the Qumran region, uh, if you're familiar with uh, discussions of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So he's moved south to to Judea and to Idumea, and then he mentions uh, more uh, generally the region beyond the Jordan. Now, from a biblical perspective, we always must recognize that any reference to beyond the Jordan always means the land to the east of the Jordan River. The Jordan River essentially is the eastern border of the country of Israel in these ancient times. And so the land beyond the Jordan, from the perspective of biblical writers within Israel, the land beyond the Jordan always means east of the Jordan. But interestingly enough, foreigners also referred to ancient Israel as the land beyond the Jordan. But from their perspective in, say, Mesopotamia or Persia, which is far to the east, in their perspective, beyond the Jordan meant to the west of the Jordan. So two different geographical references, beyond, uh, or one geographical reference to Israel as, as the land beyond the Jordan refers to it uh, as the land west of the Jordan, but here in the biblical account, beyond the Jordan means the land to the east of the Jordan. So there's that land then off to the east, and then there's also reference to Sidon and Tyre, which occur uh, very far near the north, uh, which would be in modern day 
Lebanon. So what's happening here? Is Mark just giving us random geographical signposts to clarify where Jesus' followers were coming from? Perhaps, but I also think there's something more, and here you really need a map to see this. If you think about Galilee and Galilee's position, then you begin to trace out an arc that connects the various different regions of Jesus' growing following. What you'll see, essentially, is that Mark is giving us a perimeter. He's sketching out lands to the, to the south, lands to the east, and lands to the west, or excuse me, north and northwest, from which Jesus is gathering uh, followers. And in a certain sense, I think Mark's point is very theological. He's anticipating here the expansion of Jesus's ministry, and, and, and eventually the expansion of the gospel beyond the Galilee, down to Judea, into Samaria, and to all ends of the earth. In fact, this is the very description that we get in Mark 1.8, which talks about the trajectory of the gospel moving out to Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. I think Mark here is anticipating that later, that later movement of the gospel uh, by indicating this growing following of Jesus from various different places. Now, a second layer, uh, and I'll say this more briefly, a second layer of why Mark includes this description, uh, might, it might function as a point of comparison with the followers of John the Baptist. In the very beginning of Mark, in 1.5, we hear that people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist. So, John the Baptist had his own following, and some scholars have speculated about whether John and Jesus had a, something of a rivalry, or at least if there was a rivalry between the followers of John and the followers of Jesus. And if that's the case, I think what Mark is saying is, yes, John the Baptist had followers from Jerusalem and Judea. Jesus also has followers from Jerusalem and Judea, but Jesus has has more followers still. He has followers from Idumea, from the land beyond the Jordan, from the Galilee and, and from the far north, Tyre and Sidon. So in this sense, I think Mark is saying, look, John is important, but Jesus is more important, and that's reflected in the fact that his followers come from a much broader geographical region. Okay, so so much for the multitudes. Let's move a little bit further in chapter 3 to verses 13 to 19. And here what we have is Jesus appointing the twelve to go out on as, as particular ambassadors of his ministry and his word. I'll begin reading with uh, verses 14 and 15. And Jesus appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, and to be sent out to proclaim the message, and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, as we begin with this passage, we might first wonder, well, why twelve? Why twelve apostles? Why not seven, or fifteen, or forty, or seventy-two, or so on and so forth? Well, twelve, in a certain sense, uh, might simply be an indication of fullness. It's, it's a number that symbolically reflects fullness in the, in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. But there might even be a more specific resonance here. Back in the Old Testament, in ancient Israel, the land was divided among twelve tribes, such that we speak of the twelve tribes of Israel. So in dividing uh, or, or in appointing twelve apostles, it might be that Jesus is intentionally mirroring this idea of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's not working with 12 tribes, but he is working with 12 ambassadors, or 12 apostles who will represent his message and ministry to the world. And it might even have further resonance with the fact that in the second temple period, which is the period between uh, the destruction of the first temple around 586 
BCE and the destruction of the Second Temple around uh, 70 CE. That period is called the Second Temple period. Uh, in that time period in Judaism, um, began to develop an idea that, that there would be a Messiah and that one of the tasks of that Messiah would be to restore the 12 tribes of Israel. In the Second Temple period, Israel more or less had been scattered. The people of Israel had been scattered throughout various parts of the world, and the land was occupied and controlled, yes, by some Israelites, but also by foreign forces. And so the hope here in, in, this, in this period was that a Messiah would come along who would restore the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Jesus is a different sort of Messiah, as we'll come to see later in our series on Mark. But what he does do is he doesn't restore the 12 tribes of Israel, but he does name and appoint 12 apostles. Okay, so that's a little bit about why 12. The second major question for this text, though, is what exactly is an apostle? I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with this term, but it's one of those terms, in in part because we are familiar with it, that we don't often stop to define it or to ask if we really understand what it means. For instance, would you say that all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles, or would you put it the other way around? Well, this is something of a trick question, or at least a confusing question, in part because the New Testament itself uses the the term apostle in two distinct ways, one more specific and narrow, and the other more broad and general. In terms of the specific usage, I think that's what we see happening here in Mark 3, 13 and 14 or excuse me, Mark 3, 13 through 19. Here he's appointing 12 whom he names apostles. In this sense, uh, apostles seems to be a particular term used to describe not all of Jesus's followers, but rather these 12 followers that he selects out from among the multitude or of the disciples, or at least the crowds that were beginning to follow him. So in this sense, then, an apostle is a subgroup of disciples, a particularly named and commissioned group of disciples who are to carry out a particular aspect of the gospel ministry. Uh, Specifically, and through time, uh, apostleship was understood in this more specific sense to only be for those people who, A, were eyewitnesses of Jesus and his ministry, so they had to be contemporary with Jesus in order to be apostle, and B, in order to be an apostle, you had to be specifically commissioned by Jesus, not just to, to be a person of faith or be a disciple, but, but to be particularly commissioned by Jesus to carry out a particular task. And here in Mark 3, that task is threefold, to be with Jesus, to proclaim the message, and to have authority to cast out demons. So in other words, the the apostles here are disciples who are commissioned to have this threefold task, uh, not all of which would also be present uh, as a commission or as a vocation for the disciples. So that's the more specific sense, that apostleship refers to people who have been eyewitnesses of Jesus and who have been particularly commissioned by Jesus to carry out a specific task. But elsewhere in the New Testament, the word apostle can be used in a, in a broader and more general sense. In fact, the Greek word that we translate as apostle, apostolos, literally means one sent on a mission. And in the Greco-Roman world, there were apostles that had nothing to do with Jesus or early Christianity. An apostle in the ancient Greco-Roman world was simply someone who was tasked and commissioned to be a herald, an envoy, a delegate of a delegate of some sort, someone basically who was commissioned to carry out a message 
to another community or to another part of the world. So in this general sense, uh, one need not be uh, an eyewitness to Jesus to be an apostle. One need not to be specifically commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle. An apostle can refer more broadly to anyone who's tasked with uh, the responsibility of carrying a word or a message to another group of people. In a sense, we might then understand apostleship simply as, uh, or we might describe it as being a missionary or or being an evangelist or really just being someone who through word and deed uh, proclaims or represents the good news of God's gospel to the world. And so in this broader sense then, a lot of people can be apostles. The New Testament and the other parts, particularly Romans 16, names a number of different people who are called apostles. And I should say, apostleship in this broader regard could be men and it could be women. It wasn't specific to one gender or to the other. And in fact, I think in some ways, each of us today as followers of Christ, in this broader sense, can also think of ourselves as apostles because we too are commissioned to live out in word, in action, the gospel in the world, wherever we are. So that's that broader sense that it, can, that it could include uh, all of us. We're not apostles in the narrow and specific sense of Mark 3, but we are apostles in this broader sense. Now, one final point on this topic, and it has to do with Paul. Uh, now, I want to get out of Mark here just for a second to, to deal with this little bit of a tangent. But in Pauline literature, in the letters that he writes to various churches in uh, the first century world, Paul very often refers to himself as an apostle. In fact, sometimes he says specifically that he's an apostle to the Gentile. And so one, one, one might wonder here, in what sense is Paul using the term apostle? Does he mean it in that specific sense of Mark 3, or does he mean it in that general sense that we just talked about? Well, I think the logical answer would be that Paul means it in that more general, broad sense. Paul uh, was, as a missionary, after his conversion, was sent out into the Gentile world to proclaim the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we see him doing that in the, in the book of Acts, but we see him also talking about that in his various letters. And that would be uh, probably the best answer and the most straightforward answer is that Paul is an apostle in this broader missionary sense of the term, that he's, he's a messenger of the good news of Christianity. But it's also possible to understand Paul as an apostle in that narrower and specific sense of the term. Um, In what sense, uh, how could that possibly work? Well, uh, on the road to Emmaus, which is described in uh, in the book of Acts, we, we hear of Paul's conversion. And in that conversion story, we know that Paul claims to have seen the resurrected Jesus. So this would qualify as one aspect of apostleship. That is, he was, uh, he, like these 12, saw and witness to, in person, uh, Jesus in material and visible form. But also in that story about Paul's conversion along the road to Damascus, he is specifically commissioned by the risen Lord uh, to a particular type of ministry. And so, uh, actually, both of those uh, criteria, witnessing Jesus uh, in, in uh, actually witnessing Jesus and also being specifically commissioned would actually, in fact, qualify Paul as an apostle in the narrower sense. It's perhaps impossible to uh, we don't perhaps need to choose between the two. It might be that Paul is an apostle in both senses, but it's just a curious point about thinking through how this term is then used in other parts of the New Testament. 
Okay, finally, one other, uh, to conclude this first part of the study, let's look at one last text, which names a third group of followers that Jesus has, and namely, uh, it's his family. Uh, And here we have a very interesting, uh, short but interesting text. Let me read it, and then I want to pull up uh, I want to pull your attention to two particular issues. This is Mark three thirty-one to 35. Then Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, Who are my mothers? Who, is, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Now, there's at least two interesting points that I want to highlight in this text. The first is the fact that in the very first verse in Mark 3.31, it references that Jesus had brothers. And then later it references him having brothers and sisters. This might seem very straightforward in a sense, but for those, but our, but for our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ who are Catholic, this poses a great difficulty because in early Catholic theology, and it continues to this day, there is a belief that that Mary not only was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That is, uh, Mary never, throughout her whole life, had sexual intercourse. Now, this is not something that Scripture itself specifies, but it's a theology uh, that's inferred in Catholicism and actually uh, becomes very, very important. And so, if this is the case, if you believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, then this reference to Jesus having brothers and sisters is somewhat problematic. Uh, Now, one way you might solve that, and some Catholics do, in this way, is they might claim that these are Jesus's half-brothers and sisters. That is, these were kids that Joseph had in a former marriage. Perhaps his wife had died before he married Mary. Uh, Now, again, the New Testament is uh, silent on that topic, but that's one way you try to deal with brothers and sisters, is that they're they're only half-brothers, that these are not brothers and sisters from Mary. They're only brothers and sisters from Joseph's side. Another way to potentially resolve it is to argue that the Greek word for brother, adelphoi, here, uh, can actually mean something less specific than a biological brother. It can mean a cousin or even a companion or friend. And we actually use the English word brother in this way sometimes. Like, for instance, uh, the old HBO TV series Band of Brothers. That's not a story about (laughs) biological brothers. It's a story about a group of soldiers in World War II. and, and, And their relationship can be described in terms of brotherhood because of their closeness. Now, all of this is very possible, but I must admit that it's, to me, it's not altogether persuasive. Here in this context, it seems like the straightforward meaning of the text is that Jesus literally had biological brothers and sisters because Mary and Joseph had other kids after Jesus. Uh, So that's one particular issue that might be a point of controversy for Catholics, but uh, would lead to a rather straightforward reading for us Protestants. The second and and perhaps more important theological issue here in this text is the way in which Jesus redefines family. These people are asking him uh, uh, questions, and he says, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Uh, And looking at those who sat around him, Jesus says, here are my brothers and mother, presumably pointing out to the disciples, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, Jesus here is redefining family 
in terms of the community of the faithful. It calls to mind to me the scene at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus in his dying moments on the cross looks at the beloved disciple, who remember is John, and looks at his mother, Mary, and he says to them, woman, here is your son, and beloved disciple, here is your mother. He's, he's welcoming or he's trying to invite people into this redescription of family in light of faith. Uh, now, this is a topic we're going to come back to uh, a little bit later in another lesson about the relationship between faith and family. But the takeaway for me in this particular text, and I invite you to, to think this way as well, is to be mindful of the spiritual mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in your life. We no doubt have uh, biological relationships, and many of our biological mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters have been influential people of faith. But many of us also have non-biologically related family who have been very instrumental in shaping our own faith. And I think this text uh, calls us to be mindful of those people and the way that their faithfulness has helped form us in a family of faith known as the body of Christ. Okay, let's move on then to part two of this, uh, of this lesson. And this part deals with Mark 4, 1 through 4. Uh, Mark 4, 1 through 34, of seeds and sowers is what I'm calling it. In this uh, part of scripture, in these 34 verses, we actually uh, have a series of parables, three parables, all of which are related to seeds and sowing. Um, Those three parables are, uh, the most well-known one is the parable of the four soils, which we'll start with, but there's two others that follow. It's the parable of the kind of the continuous or the growing seed in Mark 4, 26 to 29. And then in Mark 30 to 32, we have the parable of the mustard seed. I'm going to focus in and offer a few comments on the first and third, the parable of the four soils and the parable of the mustard seed. Now, in terms of the parable of the four soils, this is one of those stories that I suspect is familiar to many of us, perhaps from Sunday school class or from a sermon series. It's a really great little teaching nugget, Um, but again, because of its familiarity, I think we might lose some of its poignancy. So let's go back and read the text together, and then I want to draw your attention to a a few points about it. Here it goes from Mark 4, beginning in verse 3. Listen, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed... And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirty and sixty and a hundredfold. Now, a couple interesting things here to note. First of all, why have all of these parables about seeds and sowers? Well, one simple answer is we must remember that in the Galilean region, the vast majority of people would have uh, made a living as small-scale farmers. So there's an agrarian uh, background, uh, conceptual domain in which all these stories take place. It's sometimes hard for modern readers to fully appreciate that since very few of us actually farm for a living. But in the ancient world, farming would have been the norm. That would be the, the typical way you made a living. And so it would have been quite natural then to engage these stories about seeds and sowers because this was the stuff that you were involved in. So Jesus really here is bringing the gospel message and is embedding it in language and imagery that would have made sense and would have been 
familiar to the everyday life of the people of the Galilee. So that's one reason. But the second reason I think he chooses seeds and sowers is that language about seeds and sowers as a type of metaphor or analogy was already very common in Greco-Roman and early Jewish literature. Seneca, a a Greek philosopher, for instance, uh, compared educating people in philosophy to sowing seeds. And then the great Greek physician Hippocrates says this, draws a similar analogy about medicine. Um, he says they, that medicine should be likened to the growth of plants. And so there's all of these examples then of this sort of imagery being uh, used to teach a certain lesson. So in that sense, Jesus is not doing something new, but he is taking this metaphor, this imagery of seeds and sowers, and using it for a new purpose. What is surprising, though, about this text in Mark, about this parable, is that it doesn't really uh, reveal what it's about. We have this, it does tell us um, about the four soils and what happens to the seed sown on each of those four types of soil, but it never gives us the punchline. It doesn't tell us, well, the seeds are such and such, the soils are this, the sower is this, and this whole parable is really about Uh, It doesn't name what the whole parable is about. Now, of course, we can infer what it's about. It can be about faith. It can be about the word uh, taking root and growing. It's not hard to fill in the gaps, but the story, the parable itself, doesn't actually provide that detail. It doesn't really explicitly tell us what the referent is. And so initially then, as the, as the disciples get this story, they're understandably a little bit confused. Now, that's in part because in Mark's gospel, the disciples routinely fail and routinely don't get it, but, but at least in this case, we can empathize with them. It's not abundantly clear uh, what the referent of the story is. So a little bit later then, uh, a few verses later, beginning in verse 13, Mark actually has Jesus give us the explanation of the story. So he says, look, you don't understand it, so here, let me relate it to you. And I'll read the passage, beginning in 13. Uh, 13. And Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? Well, no, they don't, and perhaps neither do we. Then how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. Okay, so now we know what the seed is. The seed is the word. Note that he doesn't tell us who the sower is. The sower might well be Jesus or God, but it could potentially be understood as a missionary or as an ambassador. Remember, this parable follows on the heels of the commissioning of the 12 apostles. So maybe, in fact, they are the sowers. Continuing in 15, these are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown. So Satan here is the bird. um, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root and endure only for a while. Then when trouble or persecution arrives on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So in this case, the scorching sun is trouble or persecution. Verse 18, and others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word and it yields nothing. So the thorns here are desires, uh, I should probably qualify inappropriate desires and wealth. Then finally, 20, and these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. 
So this begins to resolve for us some of the referent of the uh, of the parable, and it gives us begins to, to paint for us a picture of what this meaning is, particularly of what these four soils are like, and what the four obstacles to growth or excuse me, I should say the three obstacles to growth are, and then what really produces soil adequate for um, a bountiful harvest. But there's still questions here. Not everything is explained. And I think this is really, uh, this is not an omission of Mark. It's not a sloppiness of Jesus uh, pedagogically. Jesus didn't accidentally leave something out. I think there's a purposefulness of, uh, of some of the ambiguity that we find here in the parable. For the parables as a teaching instrument are not meant to spell out for us black and white answers to every aspect of faith. Rather, they are evocative stories that invite us in to the message. They invite us to to be active readers, to not only hear the story, but then to fill in the reference in ways that make sense for us. And what I'm suggesting then is that as we read the story today, the point isn't just to say, okay, Satan is the bird and trouble and persecution is the sun. Rather, we are to fill in those blanks. We are to think what in our own context, in a 21st century America, what in our own lives would we describe as the bird that takes away the seed that falls on the rocky ground, and so on and so forth. I think the parables then don't end the conversation by giving us an answer, but rather they begin the conversation and they invite us in. They invite us to fill in the blanks in ways that are appropriate and make sense of the struggles and concerns and questions that we have today. Okay, let me skip the next parable, uh, as I've mentioned, and let me move on and just say something briefly about the parable of the mustard seed. Here again, I suspect that many of you are familiar with this very short parable, and here at First Pres, Reverend Dr. Tony Sundermeyer preached on it uh, in a wonderful way, comparing the mustard seed uh, to... uh, uh, kudzu that grows here in the south. Here's the parable. Jesus also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. It's a wonderful little concise parable, but two things should stand out to us as somewhat odd. Uh, first, it, it, mustard seeds, though somewhat small, are not in fact the smallest of all seeds on the earth. There are many other types of seeds that are much smaller than a mustard seed. I think uh, we should understand this, again, not as an error or omission on part of Mark or Jesus, but rather it's, it's accepted hyperbole uh, that was quite common in telling an engaging story like this. But perhaps even more oddly, is the fact of, is what a mustard seed grows into. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, and if you know of the white mustard variety that that is actually native to the uh, to that part of the world, to Israel, you'll know that mustard seeds grow into bushes. They or shrubs, perhaps. They certainly don't grow into things that have large branches, as described here in the parable, that birds could actually come in and land on and make a nest in. That's not a mustard shrub. Um, That sounds like a large tree. So what's happening here? Why does this seed, which is not the largest and its smallest in the world, produce such a large plant? Well, perhaps in most readings, uh, the explanation is simply that this is the miraculous growth of the kingdom of God in the world. A small seed can produce uh, uh, an inordinately large 
uh, tree. And, and that might well be the case. Uh, but I think there's something else going on here. And in order to get that, we have to understand something of the Old Testament background of this text. In the book of Ezekiel, a parable is told in which after the exile, God promises to plant a twig from a cedar that will, that will itself grow to become a noble and majestic cedar under which all kinds of beasts, including birds, will, di- in, uh, will dwell. There's definitely a conceptual resonance here between this something small and mustard seed in the Gospel of Mark or a twig in Ezekiel 17 growing up into a massive tree uh, so large that animals can take shelter under its shade and birds can rest or build a nest uh, in its branches and its leaves. So there's a certain uh, resonance here in the imagery. But what's interesting is that, again, in that Second Temple period, Jewish groups... um, you thought of Ezekiel 17 as something of a messianic parable. Uh, that is, it, it suggested the restoration of the house of David. That is, the house of David, the land of Israel, would once again rise as a powerful nation, symbolized by this noble, towering cedar uh, in which these animals and seeds, uh, 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 birds, would find refuge. I think Jesus knows of this, and I think, in a sense, the parable of the mustard seed is meant as something of a parody of of Ezekiel's parable of the lofty cedar. And here's what I mean. Uh, Jesus doesn't tell this story. In Jesus's version of the parable, the mustard seed does not grow into a lofty cedar. Rather, it grows into a common shrub. Uh, and it's that shrub that, that provides the protection for animals and creation. And I think what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to, to resist this idea that the kingdom of God of which he speaks is not this mighty nation that's going to be restored, but the kingdom of God is of a different sort. It doesn't work by means of power and prestige and military might and nation building. Rather, the parable of the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about and about which these parables describe is of a different sort. It works uh, in surprising ways. It works to bring life and healing to um, to the people on the margins of society. It really works to subvert power structures, not to reinforce them. Uh, So in some ways then, what I'm trying to suggest then is that the the imagery of a common mustard shrub intentionally resists the imagery of the mighty cedar uh, that we find in Ezekiel 17, insofar it's trying to paint a different picture of what this kingdom of God is all about and what it will mean to be a follower in that kingdom. Okay, finally, let's move on uh, and briefly to part three of this study. And here I want to take up, uh, only in brief, the topic of the messianic secret, this idea that, that Jesus is continually telling the disciples and others to kind of keep the message of God under wraps. An example from the text we've considered today is found in Mark 3, 11 and 12. Whenever the unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. But Jesus sternly ordered them not to make him known. This seems like a very odd comment from Jesus. I think our instinct as Christians is to say, well, of course Jesus wants to make him known and make the gospel known uh, to the whole world. That, that's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, is to be ambassadors, to be apostles, as we talked about further, uh, of this message. And yet here Jesus is telling people to hush-hush, keep it under wraps, don't let people know uh, what, who this Jesus is and what has happened. How can we possibly explain this motif of secret? 
secrecy. Well, I want to offer four brief explanations, the last of which uh, is my own particular view. One explanation is that this secrecy motif is really just reverse psychology. That is, if you tell someone to to not do something, they become all the more interested in doing that very thing. If you've ever been a parent of a little one as I am, you know that if you tell a kid, don't eat the cookie, what do they want to do? They really want to eat the cookie. So maybe in some ways that's what's happening here. Jesus is telling people to, to, to not tell other people, to not make this gospel known, knowing that in fact, by telling them not to do it, they will actually go out and do it, which is what Jesus wants in the first place. So the, the first explanation then is reverse psychology. The second explanation is of a different sort, uh, and it suggested that as the word gets out, as word gets out about who this Jesus is and what he claims to do and who he claims to be, as word gets out about this, uh, that's going to antagonize certain people. Certain people, in fact, are going to look to silence Jesus and eventually to condemn and kill him. So perhaps Jesus knows this, and he's warning people not to make his message too well known, lest he prematurely... Uh, is turned over to the authorities. That is, the secrecy motif then is trying to avoid uh, prematurely endangering Jesus's ministry. Jesus knew that his time had not yet come, and in order for him to continue to minister, uh, the message would have to somewhat come under wraps so that he wouldn't receive too much um, animosity from those who were opposed to his message. The third possibility is a little more technical and academic, but I, I want to mention it here because it, it's very important in scholarship on the Gospel of Mark. There was a scholar named William Vreda uh, who, who suggested that the secrecy motif was invented by the early church and inserted into the Gospels. That is to say that he didn't think this was really original to Jesus's ministry. Now, why would the early church, and Mark in particular, invent this idea of Jesus telling his disciples to be silent? What would be the purpose of that? Well, here's how Vreda uh, reasoned. He says that the early church, and Mark in particular, was aware of the fact that the earliest traditions of Jesus, his earliest sayings, uh, the earliest sayings that we have of Jesus, do not uh, present Jesus as a Messiah. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus wasn't a Messiah, but, but, but describing Jesus as Messiah was not part of the earliest traditions that taught about Jesus. But of course, the later church clearly comes to understand Jesus as Messiah. So what Vreda is trying to do then is to account for this, this, this gap, for this idea that the church knows Jesus as Messiah, but the earliest traditions about Jesus don't describe him as such. And so Vreda attempts to solve that problem by saying the reason why the earliest traditions don't refer to Jesus as Messiah is because he told his disciples to keep it a secret. It's only later, after the resurrection, that it becomes clear to all of his followers, and then later to us as readers, that this truly was the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, a fourth possibility, and there might well be others, I should add, but the fourth possibility is my own understanding, and it takes a slightly different track. The word for secret in Mark um, is not what we typically think of as a secret. When we, th- when we say secret, we mean something intentionally withheld from someone uh, for some sort of purpose. But the word that gets translated as secret in the Gospel of Mark is really the Greek word mysterion. And you can hear already in that word mysterion, the English word mystery. Now, a mystery is something different than a secret. A mystery is, is something that, that is, is difficult to fully understand. We're not intentionally withholding knowledge or information 
information. That's a secret. A mystery is something that's difficult to understand. And I think Mark's point is this, that Jesus's identity is not a secret, but it is a mystery. It's something that cannot be fully understood by the disciples, not because the disciples are dull or or lacking faith, but rather, I think in Mark's perspective, the mystery of Jesus's identity cannot fully be understood until after the resurrection. That is, for Mark, the resurrection reveals or unlocks the mystery. It's only from the vantage point of the risen Christ that we can look back and fully understand who this Jesus of Nazareth actually was. And the disciples in the Gospel of Mark never have this perspective. They only know that Jesus pre-resurrection. Us readers and Mark's original readers, we have the advantage, uh, the advantage of knowing Jesus after the resurrection. That is, we know how the story ends. We know that this is the risen Christ. And because we have that important information, we can look back on the life of Jesus and understand that this was not just a miracle worker. This was not just a healer or a shepherd. This was not just a great teacher or a rabbi. Rather, this really truly was the Messiah. And so I think what's happening then in this, this again, I'm not going to call it a secrecy motif, I want to call it a mystery motif, is that Jesus is actually underscoring in telling people uh, not to make him known. Jesus is not trying to keep the gospel under wraps, but Jesus is, is acknowledging that even if word gets out about him, people will not fully understand who he is. In fact, Jesus might be trying to manage the message by saying, by realizing that because people won't understand who he truly is af- until after the resurrection, then we need to be um, cautious and careful about how Jesus is presented because sometimes it's not what we know about God and Jesus that keeps us from faith, but it's what, what, it's, it's what we misunderstand. Uh, misunderstandings about who Jesus is can be a barrier to belief. And I think, in fact, that Jesus under, uh, gets that. And this kind of managing the mystery here, that's how I understand this, managing the mystery is a way that Jesus tries to, to buy time in a certain sense and to recognize that, that the full revelation of his identity would not come until after he triumphs death and rises from the dead on the third day. Thank you.